Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's mini episode not only covers episode five of The Leftovers, but also brings in total reboot host and friend of the show, Alexi Toliopoulos, to share his thoughts on the first half of season one. And as we all know, she's Jill. She doesn't do okay. I'm Justin Hamilton, and for once, I don't envy someone being stoned on Big Squid. Joining me on my rewatch of The Leftovers, this time I've brought in Alexi to help give an overview of the series, and I reckon, depending on schedules, this is how we'll approach bringing in guests. I don't want it to be like how we've done TV series or movies in past episodes. For me, The Leftovers is an emotional journey, and I'd rather discuss it on those terms with my guests. So, it's great to have Alexi here. I love Alexi, so you have a nice little extra bonus chat with him after we've talked about this specific episode episode. Before we go any further, uh, a little reminder as well that you can find a new Dispatches from the Fury Road blog at my site, justinhamilton.com.au. The latest one is called Universal Eye. It's a three-minute read covering my inadvertent adventure at a birthday party I attended after a gig. This happened recently. (laughs) And uh, what I like to do with the blogs is I try to write really short, concise things that you can read just to take your mind off things, you know, just a little break from the rest of the day. That's what I try to do with the little short stories there as well. Try and keep them nice and brief and get to the point. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, uh, you can go and check that out. Also, if you'd like to come over to our Facebook page, join the private version and you can discuss the leftovers without fear of spoilers. In fact, 
you can discuss anything you like. There's a load of different threads happening over there. And the one rule is we leave cynicism at the door while discussing art and entertainment. Doesn't mean you can't be critical, but we try to do it like grown-ups. We try to respect and value different opinions and everyone there is fantastic. Every time I go back there, there's all these new threads and I'm like, oh God, I'm trying to keep up with everything. But it's really great. And don't get me wrong. Even though I want us to discuss things like grown-ups, we we make jokes like idiots as well. So it's fun. It's just respecting each other. I know. On the internet. It's not the internet. I like to think of it as the anti-net. The, oh, the anti-net. Sounds like the antidote for the internet. Hang on, I'm going to write that down. I feel creative cogs turning. Anti-net. Hmm. Hammo. Give yourself a little trick. Okay. <laughs> Enough of me talking to myself. Let's get back to you. This is a brutal opening to an episode of The Leftovers, probably the most brutal opening of any of the episodes that we will witness. The Leftovers demands our attention, so I'll discuss that with you, and then we'll bring Alexi in, and now it's time to chat about episode five, Gladys. Following a catastrophic event, the incidents of delusion rise dramatically. The prophet's dilemma. What happens when those conversations with God go wrong? We are, all of us, no matter what we've suffered, still alive. I guess I should be scared, but I'm not. I don't know what's happening to me. I did something stupid. You lost someone? I lost everyone. The lucky ones, they get to stay sane. I am not going to lose my mind. What's happening to all of us? It won't be long now. You're okay. In the opening of this episode, we watch Paddy give her silent orders to a member of the guilty remnant and then watch as that person goes about their day. Unfortunately for this woman, who we will learn later is named Gladys, she will be abducted, strapped to a tree and stoned to death. The remnant go looking for her and come across Dean, the dog shooter, on his solitary mission. The remnant look like ghosts hovering in the forest, waving the light of their torches through the winter's night. They find Gladys still strapped to the tree, dead. The Remnant members have different reactions. Meg is pragmatic and inspired. Laurie has a panic attack. Paddy goes to Kevin at his home and asks for help. At the scene of the murder, the police are uninspired, lazy, unfocused. Maybe they don't really care because they all have their opinions about this cult that has infected their town. Kevin sees Dean and speaks to him. And I guess the positive from this is he's real, right? Kevin visits Jill at school and she bursts into tears thinking he's brought terrible news about Laurie. Instead, he's there to warn her about what he has learned before she begins hearing gossip in the town. Jill galvanises herself and comes to the conclusion that she shouldn't cry because her mother wouldn't. In the background, Kevin watches as young cheerleaders practice their new routine. Isn't this the life his teenage daughter should be leading? 
Nothing is going right for Kevin. He wants a curfew to protect everyone, including the GR, but he's voted down. One of his detectives has called in the FBI, much to Kevin's chagrin, and another inter-workplace argument erupts. At home, Jill is withdrawn. Her friend Amy is more open to talking to Kevin than his daughter. He can't get the home alarm to work, and he can't even find any of his white shirts. Kevin heads to the dry cleaners, but when he arrives, he doesn't have a ticket and is given little help by the owner. As he leaves, he's so frustrated, but he bumps into Nora, who again is funny and possibly a little flirty towards the police chief. Paddy takes Laurie away for a while and they stay in a motel out of town. Paddy leaves clothes for Laurie to change into and the next day meets her for breakfast, where Paddy speaks aloud. Laurie's confused, but Paddy encourages Laurie to leave the rules behind. But Laurie refuses, so Paddy does all the talking. She talks about Gladys, who began to lose faith when her child died overseas. Paddy gave Gladys this same talking to, to galvanise her for their approach to this life. In the GR, there's no room for doubt. There's no room for emotions. This is a world that has died and it is their job to remind everyone that they're approaching this all wrong. It is funny considering how they fall on either side of the divide, but this isn't dissimilar to how Matt feels about declaring those who departed as heroes as being anything but. And like Matt, while they both have definitive beliefs, they're also possibly lying to themselves. Matt, of course, is brought in as a suspect, but that is quickly disavowed as he pleads with Kevin to visit Gladys so he can pray for her. But when they arrive at the coroner's, her body is gone, taken by the FBI. Kevin is furious and tries to contact them, but by the time he gets through, the body is long gone, lost in a sea of bureaucracy and red tape. Before he hangs up, the FBI agent offers to come to town to rid Mapleton of the guilty remnant. We've seen what they can do to cults, just ask Holy Wayne. But Kevin declines. Does he do so because that's the right thing to do, or because he still cares for his wife and wants to protect her? Maybe it is both. Matt goes with a group of followers and prays for Gladys out the front of the abode of the guilty remnant. Laurie strides outside and at first it seems like she might join Matt, but she's taken a whistle and she blows it maniacally in his face to drown out his prayers, her faith in the cult restored. A drunk Kevin forces his way into the dry cleaners and demands his white shirts. The owner panics and hands over a bunch of shirts and we're left to wonder whose shirts they really are. Kevin appears to be horrified by his behaviour and when he returns home, tired, exhausted, emotional, he tells Jill that he and her mother are getting a divorce. Kevin is a man who was lost and struggling with the idea of the insanity that appears to be infecting him, just like it did with his father. Somewhere unknown, we watch the final fate of Gladys as her body is unceremoniously placed on a conveyor belt and cremated. The woman who was once a mother and loved her son and so much more than we'll ever know, is burned to ash, unloved, unmourned. This episode begins in such a confronting way, and I have to be honest with you and say I had toned it down in my memories. It is really difficult to watch, and I understand why people would find it off-putting, but I also think it is a really important scene. Often violence is portrayed in unrealistic ways, but this is the opposite. Real world violence is disgusting, and it's confronting, and this moment of violence importantly speaks to this world at large. To be confronted by such a biblical punishment reminds us that all belief systems would be supercharged after the departure and arcane forms of violence would become prevalent once again. 
This episode also humanises the guilty remnant, which is important because we don't want our nominal bad guys of the series to be reduced to cardboard cutout motivations. We've seen Gladys so often in the background of scenes and we've seen her be kind of awful to people or indifferent. So her death reminds us that she is still a person, probably in as much pain as anyone, even if she has thrown in with a cult. We finally learn her name, and through Patty's talk with Laurie, we now know a part of Gladys's life. When her body is finally cremated, I felt nothing but empathy and sadness for this character. That to me is amazing, because the only time I heard her speak was when she asked her attackers to please stop. I don't like the violence we see at the start of this episode, and I don't think you're supposed to. There's nothing good about it whatsoever, and that is the point. It is easy to be seduced into any viewing of TV or movies and believe that the good guys are all good and the bad guys are all bad. But we've seen through Kevin that life is much more complicated by that. Yes, he treats Gladys' murder scene with more respect than his fellow cops. He isn't afraid to question suspects, even if they are friends like Matt, and he does attempt to protect the GR as well as the public. But he's also appearing to be an alcoholic or mentally ill, and his violent outbursts are awful to watch. The stoning is terrible, but the rage he exhibits at the dry cleaner is also confronting. When he's handed the shirts, he seems to return to a sense of normalcy. Yet when he receives the phone call from the agent who offers to take down the GR, is this a genuine offer, or is this what Kevin is reading into it? No wonder his daughter Jill is so withdrawn after her mother abandoned her, her brother has gone missing, and a father who bristles with barely controllable rage. And Laurie's moment of doubt allows us to understand a little bit more about the relationship with Paddy. It appears that this relationship stretches back before the day of the departure and is in turn much more complicated than we could have imagined. And also in turn, even though they're separated, we see Kevin, Laurie and Jill all express compassion for Gladys, which suggests they too still have their morals in common and therefore a connection that they probably have forgotten that they have. But we can see it and we know that it's still there. Before we began this rewatch, I told you that I loved The Leftovers because it elicits such strong emotions from me, and I think there is an underlying beauty to the series. But part of that beauty is found because it is up against brutal truths, horrible events, and terrible actions. I know this episode is hard to watch, but it is important, because how can we enjoy the fullness of the light if we don't have a darkness to contrast it against? I remember watching this episode for the first time, alone in Melbourne, on a cold, dark, early evening. When the episode finished, I felt such pain in my chest that I had to skip dinner and just lay on the lounge listening to music. Like Paddy, I listened to the Doobie Brothers and Hall & Oates, music I used to cringe over when I heard it as a kid. But music triggers memories, and memories remind us of feelings we've long lost, and laying there in the dark on the lounge, unlike the guilty remnant, I wanted to feel emotions properly, in my bones, and not as fleeting experiences that barely brush the soul as they pass us by. And even though this episode was brutal and painful, I had a faith in the mechanics and the truth in storytelling that we were now well on our way to a deeper understanding of personal grace. Time to bring in Alexei Toliopoulos as our first guest in this rewatch of The Leftovers. You know Alexei from his superlative work on the Finding Drago and Total Reboot podcast, as well as his work for Netflix. I love Alexei, and it is great to have him here today. What's fascinating to me about your love of The Leftovers is I know that 
if anyone asks you, you're very quick to say, I'm a movie guy. I don't have time for TV. But The Leftovers somehow seeped through the cracks, and I'm wondering what it was about that TV experience that uh, drew you in. It broke through, and I would say... I don't know if you're fishing or something because I don't know if you know I watched because you recommended it to me and I almost oh, never, no, I, didn't. <laughs> I never watched like a recommendation for TV from a friend but I think it was between you and Kate Jinx going like oh you should actually watch this it sounds so up your alley because I think um, I'm very open with like how much I like really find like storytelling itself fascinating and the ideas of mythology permeating into like a modern sense as well and like that kind of like existentialism and um you know even though i'm not really raised with religion at all in my life was kind of like a thing on the periphery of my life you know once a year to like connect to the greek community for easter and stuff like religion was just a community thing for me rather than like any kind of spiritual thing but I have like a strong, uh, like almost need for spirituality, especially like with like the Christi- Christian iconography, because that's kind of like how I understood it all to an extent. So like the leftovers always was like, mm, maybe I should try. And I just bought the Blu-rays. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go in and watch it over like a couple of weeks. And it's become one of my favorite shows of all time. Oh, great. I honestly... As soon as you said that, I remember knowing that I'm evangelical about it. And yeah. when you said, are you fishing? I was like, oh, well, not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> but I find that uh, really interesting as well, because I was brought up as a hardcore atheist. Mm. And to the extent that specifically organised religion yes. was seen very much as a blight upon society. Absolutely. And I do kind of have a very similar approach to it as you do, which is there is a... It, is it spirituality that you're searching for or it's just a... Is it a higher sense of morality? I don't know what it is, but there are certain aspects to these stories mm. and what they represent that do often draw me in. And and especially in a setting like The Leftovers, where it's permeated with this, this quest for understanding yeah. and this this thirst for knowledge and it really appeals to me i think for me is in particular it's not like there's there's not like there's a higher morality than man like that's not something i seek and i think the leftovers has that encapsulated where like morality is connected to man and not something beyond but i have the this yearning for belief or yearning for like the possibility of there's something beyond my realm of understanding something beyond the realm of nature like supernature if anything like supernatural is kind of like something that i yearn like if i met a fucking gnome in real life or something it would like be the happiest thing that it could ever happen to me like if i'm just out in the park reading a book and a little gnome jumps off a toadstool and starts talking to me i would be the happiest thing in the world for me and i think the leftovers captures that idea of there's something beyond the realm of nature beyond the realm of our current understanding there's something in that magic realist sense that i just like I really connect with. Well, in this uh, rewatch for Big Squid, we're like five episodes in, and uh, even from rewatching it, I still had a very visceral reaction to that mm. opening scene in the pilot where 
the poor woman is on the phone. She is having a day too. Like she's having a real day. And then the way the baby just ceases to be there mm. is such a gobsmacking moment. And then that Max Richter music yeah. kicks in and everything's falling apart uh, around them. And I, I do love that the the world is in so many ways grounded mm. like all the characters are grounded every every character that i love in it is so deeply flawed but by having 2% of the world's population disappear it suggests that there's 2% of something we just can't get our heads around and that's just enough magic realism for you to go on the ride yeah exactly especially when you're just kind of like 2%'s not that much but like the like it is it's a lot of people 2% and it is so like that idea of like there's something missing some things are not working anymore and you know the permeation of 2% being like this idea that everything has changed like there's something that's happened in the world that um has changed forever and more so changed everybody's understanding of what the world is and what is possible in the world and i think that is such like a great idea for like this show that is like basically rooted in the ideas of like existentialism and stuff of like what is our existence if we could just disappear like that in a in a like a in a snap of the eye like it's kind of i think this is such an incredible show and, and ahead of the curve as well, because it's funny, I think people started turning to this series mm. a little bit during COVID and, and quarantine, but I actually find that it's more relevant now because we're starting to come out of all of that. We're starting to get back to what we would consider a level of normalcy, yeah. but things can't be normal because we've just had that experience, mm. and that's why I feel like, that's why I wanted to hold out before I started doing the rewatch because I think this is actually a more interesting time to delve into it. Yeah, because you can never go back, right? Once the world's changed, like, fundamentally, you can never go back. Yeah, and none of these characters can, and it's and they're so compelling watching the different ways that they push against things. We just watched episode five, which is the episode called Gladys, which opens with uh, the woman from The Guilty Remnant, who we didn't know her name to begin mm. with, but we've seen her hovering about, you know, in their passive-aggressive way for four episodes. Yeah. And she gets abducted and she gets strapped to the tree and we watch her get stoned to death. Mm. And it's interesting. I went back and I looked at some reviews from around that time and that was a, that was a point where quite a few people jumped off because they said that moment was so incredibly visceral and, mm. and, and so violent. But I'm not saying it's easy to watch, but does TV and movies, does does it all have to be easy to watch? Like, isn't the fact that it is eliciting that response from you important? Yeah, I think so. And I think for me, this was kind of like why this show appeals to me because I feel like there is a distinction between TV and film uh, more so like than the episodic nature of anything that is uh, TV's for me the main purpose is like entertainment and especially gripping entertainment where you are meant to be continuously watching week to week um, in a sense like that 
TV is more plotty than films are. And, like, when I'm talking about film, I almost never talk about plot. Like, I never... When I'm discussing film ever, plot is the last thing that ever comes up for me. And I think with TV, plot is always in the forefront. Um, because that's the nature of it. It's like about like, you know, storytelling, continuing week to week and having a reason to come back week to week. Um, and that's just the nature of the two things and why I prefer film to TV and why I don't connect to TV so much. But I think with this show, the discomfort is very real in the way that film can be, where you are more so than even stuff like Mad Men or The Sopranos. This is a show that is more about its thematic questions and about its ideas that it's in, that it's trying to put into the thoughts and minds of its viewers rather than the plot and while this plot is like thrilling and like it is exciting and especially this episode when you start getting to the ideas of like the conspiracies behind the guilty remnant or why they exist it still all just happens to be about feelings and emotions and like ideas of our existence on earth and the ideas of feeling guilty and i think that's like one thing that i can understand like why viewers would leave because it's not just like the idea of like oh it's kind of disgusting and really hurtful to see someone be hurt and killed like that in a show but i think like then this show doesn't allow you to just watch it like that. You have to kind of interpret the feelings and interpret the values of what this show is going for that I can see someone that just wants to watch a TV show because it sounds cool being really turned off when it makes a turn like this where it only goes into like the direction of questions and not just questions like, oh, what's going to happen? It's all about what does this mean, not just in the show, but what does it mean for you as well? Yeah, and it also we're so used to being set up with stories, especially in TV, as you said, like, mm. they're the bad guys. They're the bad guys, and this is how we feel about them. And then to see such an act of violence perpetrated on mm. someone who we've been set up to be one of the bad guys is... It, it, it makes you feel weird because all you suddenly do in that moment is... And I think this is what's important about that scene. It takes away everything and reduces it to a very human moment. Mm. And you do feel nothing but awfulness and empathy mm. for what this woman has to endure. And then that makes you then look at everyone who's in the guilty remnant in a slightly different way. You can't just say that they're the bad guys. They're not, they might dress like casual stormtroopers, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more going on for each character. Yeah, and I think as well with like having the Amy Brenneman character uh, be like in there, and you're slowly getting an understanding of who that person is and their relation to the Garvies. It's like I think it's very clever in the way that it makes this show forces you to feel empathy. Yeah, it's important, you know, to empathize with those people that you don't necessarily agree with mm. and it seems to be uh, a skill that has been definitely lost in uh, in more recent years mm. uh the also the thing that i love is that i i bounce back and forth with a lot of the characters like i love kevin garvey but sometimes his anger and his aggression can be quite 
confronting to watch, even though you understand where it's coming from. Mm. Matt Jamison, like that guy leaves me dizzy mm. because you you see what he's doing with the pamphlets. You Is this think, the well, Christopher Eccleston character? Christopher Eccleston, yeah. yeah. And he's he's handing out the pamphlets and he's telling everyone, you know, they weren't heroes. These people that you're celebrating as heroes, mm. they weren't that, they were flawed. Well, you know what? They're gone. We'll just let people kind of mm. feel sad about it. But I understand where he's coming from. But then also where he's coming from is if it's the rapture, he's trying to justify why he got left behind. Yeah. And then when he goes and asks for money from his sister, Nora, played by Carrie Coon, and she won't give it to him for the church. And he then at that point reveals that her husband was having an affair mm. and he kind of does it in his mind to prove that, hey, I'm not a bad person. I haven't told everyone about your husband. Mm. But it's such a moment of pure cruelty. And then, so I, I turned on him there and then then he gets knocked out and he wakes up three days later and he, he hasn't got the money to the yeah. bank in time. And I'm like, and now I've got empathy again. Like, that to me is wonderful writing. Yeah. You have to. I have to agree. I think that's like that. Is, that episode's like a real turning point in the show. I think it's like, yeah, you know, there's certain things that I think Damon Lindelof does so well, and I think one of the things is um, story construction around character, where there will be like this almost like hyperlink quality to his uh, work in Lost, especially in Watchmen, where there are like divergences in like perspectives in story, like, you know, hyperlink work like Magnolia and like Shortcuts, Nashville, where there's like, you know, it, it's like this... Uh, like a tapestry of stories where each person's point of view we get explored individually and then it kind of com- comprises to make like a whole uh, uh, like a whole complete tapestry to tell like a complete story and I think that this episode where we follow Christopher Eccleston who has been like a side character through the rest of the series so far to become like the lead of an episode and then it allows us to have like the Carrie Coon led episodes uh, the Amy Brenneman led episodes it kind of like is this idea of like that I think works so well in The Leftovers in that there's been this cataclysmic event and seeing how it has affected people on a macro level and on like this micro level of like the individuals, how the individuals are coping with it. And I think it allows to explore, allows us to explore like such like a, like an all encompassing array of like emotional and existential tones of like how people do deal with grief and guilt and like what the individual's lives are i think as well that christopher eccleson episode is like that key that unlocks like what this series is and unlocks like what the viewers and audiences enjoyment is going to be of it because i feel like if you watch that christopher eccleson episode and you're just like whoa what is this this is not the mystery show that i thought it was going to be of trying to figure out why and how this happened uh because you know uh the justin theroux character is like a classic protagonist he almost is like a chosen one character and then to go down the path of just an episode that's not about like trying to unlock the in the plot answers but unlocking like answers and questions that are in the thematic area I think that's, like, a good litmus test of, like, 
if this show is for you or not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's it's got all of that and then also I think it's really funny. Like I think Absolutely. the I, yeah. I, the one of the lines that I always use when I'm pitching it to people and I think I would have used this mm-hmm. with you as well, which is when you just talk about all the celebrities that departed yes. and if you say Gary Busey and the person that you're telling laughs, you go, "Oh yeah, you'll get this." But if they look at you as if to say, "Why is that funny?" you feel like saying, "You know what?" You you do fine without this. <laughs> That's a- exactly how you pitched it to me, and it was the idea that you said it's also funny that they just say the entire cast of Perfect Strangers. This- <laughs> And I was like, what? Okay, that's when it intrigued me. That I was like, oh, okay. I got to check out what this is all about. Yeah. Yeah. I just find that hilarious. The, we just had the, in the fourth episode, we just had the moment where the fake plastic baby Jesus gets stolen and how everyone believes different things to it. And there's, just this great moment where the mayor brings Kevin Garvey up because he's discovered the baby. And Kevin, Kevin's such a great character because he's so strong and forthright and he thinks he's going mad and he's mm. dealing with stuff. But as soon as you put him in front of a, a, a small group of people to talk, he's really inarticulate and yep. doesn't know how to handle it. And when he gets up and says, hey, we found the baby, and essentially no one gives a fuck, that says so much about the series as well, which is, oh, yeah, you, you, we're projecting what everyone's thinking and what everyone's judging us for. And for the most part, everyone's internalised and most people probably didn't even realise the baby had been stolen. Yeah, exactly. And it's great. I think you're right. This show has like such uh, an interesting sense of humour where it's like, it's almost like this cosmic joke on things that if you get it, you get it. Yeah, definitely. The uh, I won't keep you for too long, but do you, in these first five episodes... Do you remember if you had a character that really was your person or were you still at this point kind of feeling your way through all of them? Um, Yes, I did have one, I would say. Um, Also, it will be... This is very much about, like, the time that I watched it. But uh, it was just after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had come out and I was like, who is this actor? She's incredible. I was so drawn to Margaret Qualley. And then I think that was the other reason I watched this series because I was like, who is she? I got to like know more about her. I got to see more of her work. And I think I just like really, I, I think she's like such a great actor and such a potential movie star because like there's this curiosity about them. We're just like, who are you? Like, what are you? They're so interesting to watch. And I think especially, like, seeing her, like, play, like, this rebellious and, like, kind of, like, this rebellious teenager, I just found her fascinating. Oh, yeah, I think Jill's really uh, an underrated character, mm. because in in lesser hands, that could have been an annoying character, Absolutely. but there's a real empathy for her, the, you know... the. There's there's a petulance to her, but you understand the petulance, mm. and you understand that she's hurting. So you, when Kevin goes in and says to her, "Hey, your mum and I are getting a divorce," and you know, uh, it's it's this real kind of emotional moment. Mm. Whereas before, when he said, oh, "It's complicated," and she's just like, "Well, just tell me when it's not complicated," and puts her headphones on. That's such a like it's it's a proper teenager response. Yes. It's not a it's not. 
a grown person writing a teenager's response, yeah, if that makes sense. I think that's exactly right. Like, I think that she captures, like, this authenticity and, like, this, uh, like, this anger and this uh, need to, like, find oneself that I think is, like, missing in a lot of, like, teen performances, especially, like, in, like, the prestige TV dramas and stuff. Like, you know, Meta Soprano always comes to mind because I'm like, that's a character that I love and I can relate to a lot. But I think that there's something really fascinating about Margaret Qualley's performance, but also, like, innate nature where you're just like, God, what... This is such, like, a movie star, like, waiting to happen. Yeah, it's like I cannot wait to see what she does in a few years' time when she will be what? What, what, what age is she now? Like, she's probably... She must be, like, early 20s, 26. I'm hoping she's, like, you know... I hope she's not way younger than me. Like, that's the thing. So I'm like, God, she's so cool and successful. Whenever I find out people are younger than me now, like, drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, I uh, I hate to do this to you, but uh, wait till you get to forty eight. Mm. Um, I'm it- not going to make it, Justin. <laughs> I promise you that. <laughs> oh, she's twenty six. There you go. Okay, I've just looked it that's up. Okay, she's only like one yeah. or two years younger than me. And she's got a famous parent, so you know she's not. She it's not out of the realm of possibility that I could be successful one day. <laughs> still, still plenty of time for you to play Jill in the remake of The Leftovers. That's it. Uh, the uh, I'll only keep you uh, briefly, but uh, w- what I love is one of my favourite characters in any TV show across time and space is Nora, mm. and it's interesting to rewatch this and realise in those first five episodes you don't really get a lot of her, yes. but when you do get scenes with her, they're fascinating. Mm. So the first episode the pilot she's the essentially the victim who has mm. to get up and give the speech at heroes day and then and then the next time you see her she's got the gun in her uh, purse yeah. which for people who haven't uh, watched it yet we still don't know what the gun is for but yeah. that will come into play chekhov's gun does come into play Absolutely. but you know she's knocking the mug off just to see what she can get away with and you go oh that's that's a fascinating moment. And then you see her job where she's interviewing the people whose son who had Down syndrome was taken and she has to ask all these awful questions. Yep. And her performance is empathetic, but she just gets on with the job. That's what Nora does. Then you see, you get a taste of her with her brother in Matt Jamison and he's awful towards her. But then the next two scenes we've had with her is she kind of kind of flirts with Kevin mm. and she's really funny. Like yeah. she's really quick witted. And when you see her at the, at the library fundraiser and she's sitting next to her, her locker and then Kevin comes out and there's such a, such a beautiful scene where she says, you know, oh, I discovered that my husband was cheating on me. And Kevin just says, I cheated on my wife. And she says, well, why'd you do it? And he says, I, is there ever a really a good answer for that? And she really, you can see her really react to mm. that moment because it feels like probably since her family departed three years before, that's the first moment of pure honesty she's received. And she is, I feel like from that moment, Nora's like hooked on Kevin. Mm. I feel like that's the basis of their relationship. And I, I 
it's funny to know where Nora's going. I know, right? T- to know that she was barely in it yeah. for so many episodes. I think that's the thing as well. Like, that character really sticks with you at the end of the series. Like, really, it does. And it's so weird to, like, take yourself back to those first episodes where you're trying to figure out, like, what the identity of the show even is. And you're like, well, there's this one weird character that I barely think about. <laughs> Who will turn out to be the most important person in my life, yeah. real and fictional? <laughs> <laughs> have uh, Have you just getting off the leftovers briefly? Have you seen the nest with no. Carrie Coon and uh, Jude Law? That's the new. Uh, it's a feature film, right? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but um, I'm interested because I I love Jude Law as well. Oh, mate, it is. It's great. It's two powerhouse performances mm. that aren't. Trying to be powerhouse performances, yeah, great. like they are just perfect. And once again, it they're very different, but it has a sense of horrific dread to it. The way the leftovers can at certain points. Did you see but- as well at one point last year? Um, it would have been like at some point during the uh, quarantine. I'll find the picture and I'll send it to you. But Carrie Coon posted a picture of all the DVDs her and her husband had watched throughout the lockdown. And I was like, this is like a dream. Like, it's such a dream collection. And as someone who's like DVD obsessed and like physical media obsessed, like trying to spot the ones that I owned in like their big hall. They basically watched like three movies a day and they were all like incredible. Like that should be what people make their watch list around is just that DVD pile that she put together. I I saw... I remember seeing that, I, but please send me the link again because I'd like mm. to check it out again. I remember seeing that and I saw a picture of her wearing a David Bowie t-shirt and I was like, well, isn't it disappointing that you're married because I love you so much? And she's married to Tracy <laughs> Letts, who's like one of the coolest uh, freaking dudes, right? Who's so awesome. Yeah. That's better though. Like it would be much worse if she was married to someone that we went, ah. She's married to freaking Carrot Top, dude. What the... <laughs> Ashton Kutcher? Like, what's <laughs> happening here? Uh, well, that's great, Alexi. Like, uh, do you have anything for people who are watching it for the first time? As I said, we're halfway through mm. the series. We've we've seen, uh, you know, the, the, the beginnings of uh, the Guilty Remnant buying the church. We've seen the absolutely mesmerising image of all the fake dead bodies mm. on the road. Do you have anything to <clears throat> sort of say to everyone to get them prepared for the next five episodes? Um, I honestly don't know what to say because I think, like, this show was continually surprising to me. And I think yeah. it would just I would just say open yourself up to it and open yourself mm. up to trying to answer the questions thematically for yourself as well like i feel like this one this show you know i don't know if i would be so open in going to you like yes yes i'm you know spiritualistic and stuff like that if it were not for this show (laughs) you know i think that this show helped me understand like why it is that i have like this need for trying to find something beyond my own existence beyond my realm of Understanding. I think this show is, uh, it's all about those things and you have to be open to them. And you should be. This show freaking rocks, dude. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let's get you back for the end of the first season mm. and then we can uh, speak a little bit more openly about where everything goes from here. Alexi, where can people find you out there on the World Wide Web? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at This Is Alexi and I've got podcasts come out the wazoo once again. Uh, Total oh. Reboot is back, baby, and we Great. are doing like bigger mini mega series festivals this year where we basically pick like topics that we find interesting in cinema and then explore big classic iconic and interesting titles within them so we're doing teen movies at the moment talking about screen ages teens on screens so we're doing stuff like days and confused ferris bueller's day off eighth grade rumble fish talking about like big interesting teen movies oh eighth grade is Fucking beautiful. Oh, man. It's such a great film. And watching it again, like, the anxiety was still there. But now I could, like, appreciate, like, (laughs) oh, this is what this movie's trying to do. Amazing. Right. (laughs) There is a definite anxiety that I had forgotten about. Uh, Alexi, thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to uh, catching up with you again very soon. My pleasure. And, Justin, I'll tell you what. I love you, buddy. Before we go, we've got a few squid bits for you. When Kevin puts his beer on the roof of his car, if you look behind him, there are two toy penguins in the window. We've already had an episode called Penguin 1, Us 0, and we see Kevin take his anger out on the dry cleaner owner, just as children took their anger out on the inflatable penguin. Fire is playing an important symbol in this series. In this episode, we see Jill hold her hand over a flame, and we have Paddy Tolori. Doubt is like fire. It burns you until you become ash. In previous episodes, we've seen Matt's house in flames. That was in a childhood memory that kind of confused his older self with him, if you remember that from uh, a couple of episodes back. And we've also seen Kevin's feet catch on fire in one of his crazy, weird-ass dreams. Keep flames in mind for the rest of the series. Uh, The people who kill Gladys are dressed in black, in contrast to the GR... That is also something to keep in mind for later in the series. Uh, the song the radio plays when Paddy drives Laurie to the motel is The Doobie Brothers, What a Fool Believes. That is a song that never never do it at karaoke unless you can sing properly. You think you can hit the high notes and then it goes high and then it gets out of your range and then it goes to a place that, well, you'll probably have a strike trying to hit it. <laughs> That's, that's what Big Squid's all about. It's, it's not just about celebrating art and entertainment. It's about making sure that you don't do a da- some kind of damage to yourself at karaoke. I care about you. A few more Squid Bits. Uh, Matt quotes from the non-canonical Christian text, The Gospel of Thomas. I like to think that's the Gospel of Josh Thomas. The clipboard held by the government employee at the end uh, says there are all these other cults, one including Apollo's Army, which is great. Uh, I'm dying to know who Apollo's Army is. Gladys is an original character for the TV series, although her murder resembles the deaths of two GR members in the book who are killed with single shots to the head. The awkwardness of Kevin seeing Amy in skimpy clothing around the house is an ongoing scenario that takes place in the book. There's also a few references to the war in Yemen, and this is a fictional conflict that comes from the book. I like that world building. There's all this stuff going on in the background that's kind of mentioned or hinted at, and it 
even though the the TV series is centered in this one place on a few characters, you you do get a sense of the the rest of the world and everything that's going on there. Oh my god! Imagine some of the wars that would take place with all of this stuff. Oh, it's it's amazing, uh, amazing as in it's a, a lot to think about. <laughs> like it's it's only twenty eight episodes. I feel like this could have gone on forever. Like it, they did the right thing in keeping it to twenty eight episodes, but whew, far out, right? All right. That brings us to the end of our latest episode. Thank you to Alexi for dropping by to chat about the show. I'll be back next week with two more podcasts for you, our usual longer one earlier in the week, and then the next Leftovers episode will uh, drop toward uh, the weekend. Uh, Once again, the next couple of weeks are a little bit full on uh, with a writing job, but uh, I'm, I'm ahead of schedule on a few things so i should be able to keep uh, everything dropping at the times that you're used to uh, i hope you're enjoying the podcast and the show please leave us a nice review on apple Podcasts. and i have to say i've seen lots of people online uh suggesting uh this podcast to other people and uh thank you that's really nice of you and uh you know uh I, I do appreciate it. I try to always let you know that uh, I've seen it. And uh, if I haven't seen it, uh, I just literally haven't seen it because you would have gotten a like or a thumbs up or a thank you or something. So if this is the first time you're hearing it, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, oh, and remember, come over to our Facebook page and share your thoughts. Lots of good people over there and there's some nice chats going on. Let's finish with a quote from Mark Twain. Nothing that grieves can be called little. By the external laws of proportion, a child's loss of a doll and a king's loss of a crown are events of the same size. Until then. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.